0: And it's a big hello to the latest Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is David Cushnan, Head of Content here at Leaders. With me, as always, John Porch, Lead Writer at the Leaders Performance Institute. John, hello. Hello, David. How's it going? Well, John, it's been a busy old week, hasn't it?
1: Oh, to say the least.
0: We have been at the Leaders Sport Performance Summit in London, our flagship annual event at the Oval, home of County Champions Surrey County Cricket Club. We've had a fabulous time, haven't we, over the last couple of days? And in this special edition of the podcast, we're going to give you a flavour of what it was like in and around the venue. We've spoken to some speakers. We've spoken to a few of the delegates Uh, just to get a sense of of what people were thinking Uh, john you while uh, everything was going on on stage were tucked away in our what i'm going to call our mobile broadcast uh, studio recording all sorts of video insights with various people uh, that uh, performance institute members are going to be able to see over the next uh, few weeks Uh, what were some of your highlights uh, from up there
1: well off the top of my head a couple of things that really stuck out or a couple of people really were Meg Popovich, who of course spoke on stage, she's with the Toronto Maple Leafs, I think she went down really well with our audience, I really enjoyed speaking to her, and of course the guys from Team Porsche, they were brilliant as well, that's Stephen Mites and Carlo Wiggers, I had the opportunity to speak to both of those as well, and another speaker, Trent Robinson from the Sydney Roosters, he really stuck out for me as well, and he was very generous with his time, but uh, I heard that you recorded quite a few bits and pieces yourself, David.
0: Well, indeed, while you were doing that, John, uh, me and our uh, colleague, James Emmett, uh, who you might remember from the uh, sister podcast, the Leaders Sport Business podcast, editor at large here at Leaders, uh, we were out and about uh, podcast microphones in hand, getting a flavour of things. And we're going to do this in two batches. And we're going to hear from various people um, over the course of this podcast. Um, In this first batch, you are going to hear from Tom Markham. Uh, Tom is the head of Strategic Business Intelligence uh, for uh, Sports Interactive. The makers, of course, John, your favourite computer game, football manager.
1: Oh, yes. When the new game comes out, David, my social life just disappears.
0: And effectively, that game has uh, become a real scouting tool for many uh, professional uh, football organisations. So I had a chat with Tom early on on day one. Uh, You'll then hear from Anne Keothavong, who is the Great Britain Fed Cup captain, and she's a coach uh, for around about 75 days a year uh, at the Lawn Tennis Association. So we'll get her views on what she heard and saw uh, on stage. And we'll hear from Craig Ranson, the Director of Athlete Health at the English Institute of Sport. Uh, He was a speaker. He did a terrific presentation uh, late on on day two. Not always the easiest slot in the schedule, but he did a superb job uh, talking about a really red hot topic across the performance world, uh, mental well-being initiatives that EIS are pioneering. So we'll hear from uh, those three in our first part. And then, John, should we come back and uh, talk about a couple of the other interviews that we did and also the Innovation Lab?
1: Yeah, let's break it up a little bit.
0: Dr. Tom Markham, welcome to the uh, Leaders Sport Performance Summit. Thank you, David. Uh, You are a doctor of...?
1: Football finance.
0: Football finance. Okay. Uh, well, that's handy given your profession, um, head of strategic business development at Sports Interactive.
1: Yep, yeah, makers of Football Manager.
0: Indeed, and you've just um, been on stage opening up things uh, for the Directors Forum. We're here on uh, day one of the Sport Performance Summit, and uh, you were dropping a few stats just about the the size, the 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 juggernaut that is Football Manager.
1: Yeah, well it, it effectively is a legacy uh, piece of software at this stage. It's been around since 1992, so 26 years. Uh obviously formerly as Championship Manager, but the same team now now as Football Manager. But we we have in terms of our player base at the moment there's 212 million hours the the game was played for last year, which is nearly 24,000 years. <laughs>
0: That's uh, yeah. That's quite significant, isn't it? Um, and obviously, I think what's fascinating about this is, as obviously the the game originated as a simulation of real life, and you've been through this. I mean, how would you describe it? Evolution, revolution, in terms of what it is now, where actually um, it is being used, and, and the uh, some of the machinery around it is being used um, in
1: high performance environments. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's a strange one. It, it's sort of you know. Art imitating life, but <laughs> in reverse. So we always pride ourselves on realism, and we have 1,300 scouts in 51 countries that compile the database, which is the most comprehensive in world football. I think there's there's nearly, well, sorry, there's just over 800,000 players, management, backroom staff, etc., that are evaluated. Each component, each player there's 250 different attributes so probably 40 of them are visible within the game but we're now in an era where data is so important just to make decisions and to to be able to make that call on who you're going to scout and and you know who's worth assessing so to put it in perspective some of the biggest clubs in europe would only have 40 scouts in in their entire scouting network so, to be able to have boots in the ground in all of these different places and that are evaluating players independently and over a period of time. So these guys are going to watch every single game, first team, reserve team, the whole way down the youth spectrum and attending press conferences, open training sessions. So they really are quite impartial. And it, now we have Champions League clubs, we've got MLS clubs, a lot of Premier League clubs, but. We, unlike other data providers, that most of the big data providers will only, that are covering regular stats, they'll cover 15 leagues. And they're the biggest 15 leagues, which are the easiest ones to get all the information on. Whereas we cover, you know, 45,000 clubs in 51 different countries. So to, to go down the footballing pyramids, it is a bo- like it's it's just an oracle of information.
0: And when you're talking to when you're talking to clubs and when you're working with clubs, is it that credibility that the independence brings that is is of
1: great value to them? I think so. I think they and it, it's a lot of people that are in positions from recruitment, scouting, evaluation of players have actually grown up playing the game. So a lot of, a lot of that you know so, so that helps, but it, the independence is extremely mm. important. And we've had, just to give you a couple of examples, so we've had MLS clubs to come to us, for example, and the MLS system is, is very rigid in terms of the, the wage cap that, that's in place. Mm-hmm. So they are shopping in, let's just say, value markets where they might not necessarily have the most amount of information. So a lot of the players would come from Central South America where they're you know a director of football has given a, a DVD and it, it, he's only seeing the player's side he's seen the agent tell him this but he can't really find out too much more yeah. so they'll come to us and say well what can you tell us about this guy what's his personality like and they can actually ask specific questions and get a bespoke report on the background and what they want to see on these guys
0: you're a, you're a breath of fresh air in a world of vested interests is, <laughs> is that what you're saying?
1: Um, I,
0: that's, that's a good way of putting it <laughs> Um, we're talking we've had a couple of sessions here this morning we're talking the uh, first coffee break morning of of day one so we've only had a couple of sessions but I do sense uh, just looking at the agenda just getting a sense of some of the conversations happening um, in the uh, in the exhibition area that data-driven decision making is going to be a universal theme of the next couple of days and clearly it is probably the number one challenge opportunity for anybody operating in a high-performance environment. Given your almost unique position in in the industry, give us a sense of how you're seeing that evolving and particularly the piece around how best to interpret and make sense of the the huge ever-growing volume of data that a lot of major teams now have access to.
1: Yeah, I think that it's it's a massive area for development, but I think at the start it, it was. The quintessential buzzword, and that people just wanted to hear this and wanted to do something data-related. They didn't necessarily know what to do, but I think the skill set that you're now seeing come through within sports, like a lot of the, let's just say, more elite clubs, we we encounter data scientists that have come from banking, that have come from blue chip backgrounds, because you're dealing with a massive amount of data, and you need to, you just need to mine and take out the elements that you need. And often that's what we'll do for clubs we have certain clubs that will come to us and they'll only say rather than the 250 different attributes the you know all of the skill sets etc they'll just say right we actually only need um, passport entitlements you know contract expiries and um, you know th- th- these type of stats we've had other clubs come and say we want just weight and height data. So I think it's it's more being able to manipulate and get the results from the data that you have rather than just having you know troughs and troughs of data. And as you say, it's potentially
0: fundamentally changing the recruitment process.
1: Yeah, I, I you know, you always need to be one step ahead. We've we've just seen the session with with Porsche, and they were talking about just your head being on the block every time you're you're on the track, and it's the same. You know, from a football perspective, you need to stay ahead in in, in the scouting game. And if that means being involved in in scouting in different markets, which a lot of clubs do, like, for example, you look at Genoa now, who'd probably be in the relegation zone in Serie A if they hadn't gone and and just specifically focused on Poland and taken the best talent out of Poland and have signed some brilliant players. And, And that's the difference between them being a Serie A club and a Serie B club.
0: And uh, just finally, what, what's next in the football manager world?
1: So we have a few things happening. One, one of the more interesting practical um, football industry products we're, we're developing is a match engine that you can actually play that, that can be filled in by the analysts of a football club and they can run different simulations based on selection, okay. player performance, different formations etc so you'll you'll have the internal analysts pick that club and then they'll they'll obviously have their opposition analysts fill in for the other club and what they expect there to almost be able to present that to the coaching team and and ultimately to the head coach or the manager and say we think this is the most likely way that you'll win at the weekend extraordinary
0: well look forward to hearing more about that Um, in the meantime thank you ever so much for being with
1: us tom thank you david
0: anne Fong, uh you are here at the Sport Performance Summit. It's your first time. How have you found it so far?
2: Uh, it's been a very uh, interesting day for me so far. Um, yeah, obviously here for the first time, um, learning about how uh, some of the other sports uh, work together as a team. It's um, provided a great insight for me. Coming from tennis, where you're dealing with um, individuals who are very self-centred and, and um, focused on, uh, I guess on their their own programs, not necessarily uh, open to other information outside of uh, what's coming from uh, their inner team. Um, So yeah, educational.
0: Good stuff. Uh, Now, maybe just uh, for the benefit of everybody listening, just explain your role with the the LTA. and you still doing the Fed Cup
2: stuff? Yes. So I am uh, the British Fed Cup captain, um, which means I I guess I help manage. the players who are on the team. Um, I maintain good relationships with uh, our best female players, um, and I don't coach on a day-to-day basis. Um, but I work alongside their coaches to understand them as individuals, as, as players, uh, what makes them tick, what make, doesn't. So when we come together as a team, um, I'm equipped with enough knowledge to, I guess, um, help prepare them to perform as best they can once they step out there on the court.
0: And I guess one of your major challenges is um, working in an individual sport for, that is, for the majority of the year, a very almost selfish sport um, in terms of each individual um, playing for themselves. And then you're trying to instill a team atmosphere, a team spirit. Is that, is that something that keeps you awake at night?
2: Yes. <laughs> you can say that again. Okay, it's, um, it's not a natural environment for a lot of the players to come into, um, yeah, you know, they don't necessarily all get along with one another. They see things differently. They, they prepare, they train differently. Um, but uh, you know, it's an ongoing process. Um, you know, getting them to understand the purpose, why the LTA invests in Fed Cup, why we, the support staff, do what we do, and um, you know why we we do our best to try and well, like I said, help prepare them. We don't do the winning for them. They do that once they step out on the court. We just um, help prepare them to get in the best state possible. Um, but it, yeah, it, it's a challenge and uh, I guess that's one of the reasons why I'm here, to pick up some other ideas from other sports, how they manage individuals um, and how they get people to see eye to eye, yeah that's a big challenge.
0: One of the other things that I'm really interested to get your view on is um, data, data driven mm-hmm. decision making which I think is one of the universal topics, yeah. it comes up in almost every session here, we've had specialist roundtables uh, around that. What's the situation in tennis? Obviously, there's a lot of statistics. There's a huge amount of data to play with. Um, Yeah. How far down the sort of data road is is tennis generally and, and the LTA specifically?
2: Um, it's definitely heading down that road. Um, there's been a lot of uh, investment. We have uh, a good team now who uh, do the analysis, match analysis um, uh, for our players. Uh, players are taking more of an interest uh, into their own stats, into their oppositions, uh, opponents' strengths and weaknesses. Um, use it for technical development as well. Um, you yeah, know, it's a whole new world for for a lot of us uh, out there. But. Um, you you can have all this information, it's how you use it, um, how a player and the coach uses it um, to benefit their tennis, Um, that's still, I guess, a a big question, how it can be used better. Um, But ultimately, also, we've got to be, I think, a little bit careful that we um, don't focus everything on um, data. Uh, because in the game, well, in the world of tennis, you still you need the hand-eye coordination. You need to be able to feel and figure it out for yourself. Um, you don't get you don't have someone um, you know going stepping there at, at the end of a set with an iPad full of stats um, and telling you <laughs> what to do. Um, so you still need to have a, a strong feel for the game, and like Simon said, get the basics right.
0: You are a former player, of course. Yeah. Um, if you could spin the clock back just a little bit to when you, you were playing and you could have access to the kind of data, the kind of analysis tools that the, the players of today have, is, is that something that you think, you know, you as a player would have um, appreciated, benefited from, or is there a sense sometimes that it can be a little bit overwhelming?
2: Um, yeah, definitely, if I could turn the clock back, there a lot of things I'd <laughs> <laughs> do differently. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's certainly a place for it. Um, yeah, I'm sure I would have benefited uh, hugely from it um, in terms of improving you know, how to use it to improve my own game. Um, it's uh, yeah, um, it's an ongoing process um, for a lot of people.
0: And just finally, uh, next in terms of the, the Fed Cup. Yes, what's we the, the we
2: have we yeah we'll we'll be hosting uh, Fed Cup in February in Bath. So and that's the, the
0: first time for, for a twenty long time. Yeah, yeah first
2: time for twenty six years. So we'll be one of eight teams um, and only one of. Uh, Uh, one of those teams will go through to the playoffs, so uh, we're hoping to make it us for the third year in a row. Um, Tickets go on sale on Thursday, so (laughs) I'm plugging that. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, if we can get as many people down to Bath uh, to support the British team, that would be great and be hugely appreciated by uh, all the players on the team because this is something they've wanted for a long time. They've wanted to experience uh, the support the Davis Cup team have had, um, and uh, it's about time we had Fed Cup in the UK.
0: Well, best of luck with that and great to meet you and enjoy the rest of the summit. Thank you. Craig Ranson, Director of Athlete Health at the English Institute of Sport. Uh, welcome to the Leaders Sport Performance Summit. Um, you are going to be speaking uh, this afternoon, addressing the audience. I think we're. I think it's the headliner. It's the big finale. Um,
3: tell us a little bit about what you're going to be saying. Um. Yeah, thanks very much for the invitation, first of all. Um, I've been trying to get to leaders for about 10 years and, and just never had the opportunity, so it's been fantastic so far. Um, what I'm gonna be talking about is is something that's um, uh, not really in my area of expertise, actually. I'm a, a physiotherapist by trade. However, my job now involves um, overseeing the athlete health strategy for Olympic and Paralympic sport in the UK, uh, and that includes physical and mental health. Um, so what we're gonna be talking about today is our efforts over the last year to really give mental health a focus and to develop a, a strong strategy around mental health um, that we're now beginning to action across our high performance system. And, and tell us a little bit about what stage you're at, obviously across
0: the performance world, across sport, in fact, across every industry. Yep. Mental health, mental well-being is becoming more of a, uh, well, a topic that is, is discussed more widely and more openly and on, everybody's learning. Where are you on your journey?
3: Yeah, very much um, at the beginning, although insane, that um, the English Institute of Sport and the other uh, institutes in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and the, the world-class program sports themselves have been doing this pretty well for a long time. Uh, the institute's been around now for over 15 years. Uh, we've had performance lifestyle advisors that whole time who, who uh, help athletes with all aspects of their well-being, so physical, career, um, educational, family. Uh, We have dedicated sports and exercise medicine doctors in every sport who are, um, as part of their training, do quite a bit in mental health and are the first point of call often for athletes with mental health problems. Um, And and a very strong psychology service as well. So those those have been around for a long time. Uh, What we've probably seen in the last 12 months is is a real impetus and a focus on mental health. Uh, and although those things have been there and in place, they haven't really been brought together strategically and, and given a real focus, so that's what we're doing now, but we're 12 months in. So where are you drawing
0: inspiration from? Is it from other sports organisations? Is it from other sectors, Other uh,
3: different types of company, firm? Yeah, I mean, one of the first things that was done in this area at sort of the start of this year was to develop a, a steering group. Um, the steering group's job, first job was to develop the strategy. Um, and, you know, it just made sense uh, to, to get as much expertise from uh, outside of the, the, the sporting environment as, as possible, inside as well. But, so, for example, we've partnered with um, you know, probably the biggest uh, mental health charity in the UK in mind. They have a um, uh, physical activity and sports arm. They've developed lots of resources in this area, they've worked with, with similar sized companies in big business, also with, with other sporting organisations. So you know they've been there and done that, so why not you know, help to accelerate our process by using it um, and, and helping letting them support us in, in uh, putting our strategy into action. Another big key was the building industry. Um, so uh, from one of the biggest builders in the UK, we have a representative um, from their occupational health arm we have done a lot of work in mental health. They have a similar age population to us, you know, um, predominantly young men, um, and who who work hard and live hard, um, and are often travelling a lot. They're in itinerant jobs, there's not much job security, Mm -hmm. um, and they have an incredibly high suicide rate, sadly. Um, So they've put a lot of really good initiatives in place um, in a a similar, different, but very uh, similar in some ways, population. And again, we've taken their advice on board as part of the steering group and incorporate a lot of the work that they've done into our strategy as well.
0: What role do the athletes themselves play in terms of, are they represented on the steering group? Are you, how are you filtering information, guidance, advice down to them?
3: Yeah, I mean, the athletes um, were pretty much the catalyst for this. In 2017, uh, all of the sports undertook a culture health check, um, and that's where the, the athletes and staff in each sport were, were asked Uh, a load of questions about their culture in order to guide culture development. Um, And one of the questions they were asked was about their health. Um, One question was, how well do you think your physical health is looked after by the high performance system and within your sport? Well over 90% of the athletes said, yes, they were very satisfied with that. Um, But over a quarter of them uh, said that they weren't satisfied with their mental health provision. So the athlete's voice was very much the catalyst for, for starting up the steering group and then into the strategy. Um, we also have an athlete representative uh, on the steering group and more and more we'll be um, engaging with athletes who are the customers, the end users of mm-hmm. the services that we're trying to support. So really, really important that we continue to have their voice.
0: This, this might be a strange parallel to draw, but is there something in, in the same way that younger people are more familiar with technology for example and a, a very very comfortable te- you know they're natives of a digital of a, of a digital world with something like mental health mental well-being in a in a at a time when it's being talked about more where it's being discussed more do you think sort of organically generationally there's going to be a group of young athletes who um, Buy-in is maybe the wrong the wrong phrase, but who who, who take to this, uh, adopt it, and are, uh, are perhaps more comfortable receiving the type of uh, guidance that, that organisations like EIS will be offering.
3: Yes, um, and there's a, there's a couple of really good examples of that. Um, the speakers just this morning at Leaders were talking about uh, blended learning approaches uh, and using uh, digital technology. An example that we have of that at the moment is where we're rolling out a, a questionnaire that looks at both the, the number and prevalence of mental health problems amongst all the athletes, but also their level of positive mental health. And when we went to the program directors to say, OK, what's the best way to get really good participation from the athletes with this? They said, so we we're just going to email them, um, you know, the questionnaire. They click on a link and they go into this web, website. And they said, well, no point in doing that. They don't use email anymore. And, hang on, how do you communicate with them? And they said, well, we have WhatsApp groups and we have social media groups, uh, Instagram. And, uh, and we said, oh, OK, we, we just, this is something that we just didn't cotton to. Um, so, you know, that's been very, you know, we now go to each sport individual and say, right, how, as a sport, do you, staff and administrators and coaches and athletes, how do you communicate as a group? And we try to piggyback off the top of the stuff that they're already doing on a daily basis rather than impose our way of communication on them. The second is in terms of the resource for education around creating positive mental health environments, pathways to care, um, and again, mine's been terrific in this in that they've developed a lot of e-learning modules already. Um, it's important that we probably take those and adapt them uh, for the high performance system. A lot of the feedback we get is, okay, this mental health, first Aiding tra- tra- uh, mental health first aid course is terrific. However, it's generic and it's about Joe Public. I'm an elite athlete. Um, and that, well, as well as there's, you know, there's tremendous messages in that, I think it is important to get uh, the full impact of those is to tailor them to um, to the methods of communication, but also the context of their their working environment in high-performance sport.
0: Mental well-being is, is obviously an individual uh, an individual thing; it's a personal experience. Um, but are are you starting to be able to to draw any patterns or maybe make any um, uh, make any conclusions about particular sports or particular times of an athlete's career where there's there's particular um, stresses?
3: Um, on the second point in terms of times of the career, it, I suppose it's like anyone, it, it's times of change. Um, you know, I've got a friend who's who's having his first baby in three months time, his wife's having their first child and they're, they're moving house, he's changing jobs, you know, three live, big life stresses all at once. And um, those of us who've been there know that, you know, one of them by themselves is enough to, to deal with, but three on the bounce. So times have changed really, so it's, it's athletes who are new onto the program, um, it's athletes who are out with long-term injuries, uh, athletes coming towards the end of their career, those particular transition points are mm-hmm. ones that we're we focusing our, our positive mental health efforts and making sure that the resources are around the athletes at those particular times. So good induction processes, uh, good exit process from the programs and, and really good care during times of prolonged injury. Uh, so, yeah, that's one. In, in terms of, of what do we know about the types of problems and patterns of problems in athletes, uh, not much. And that's the, one of the, the things with this questionnaire that we're running at the moment, mental well-being questionnaire, is to find out you know, what are the, the types of mental health problems. Is it depression, anxiety, eating disorders, uh, addictive behaviours? You know, where should we be focusing our, our prevention efforts? Um, but also, what's the level of positive mental health in our athletes? Are they you know, they're particularly healthy? Are there pockets who aren't? Um, We will be able to differentiate on a sport-by-sport basis. We won't be advertising that, but we'll be able to tell sports where you sit in terms of the rest of the high-performance system, which will be really valuable information for them.
0: Uh, You mentioned that you have a a physiotherapy background. How much are you learning, and how are you doing that learning?
3: Um, uh, Lots, is is (laughs) the answer. Uh, learning uh, a lot um hopefully very quickly um and uh, experientially <laughs> because we are living it at the moment yep. we're right in the middle of it um you know in in, in less than 12 months we've had a, a steering group set up we've had a strategy written and we're now recruiting a number of posts to support the strategy and that's now going out into action in less than 12 months so uh, in another 12 months time i think we'll be leaps and bounds on um but you know in, in a variety of ways you know coming to sessions like, that's the last two days, there's been some terrific presentations on, on how different organisations are promoting positive mental health and positive wellbeing amongst their athletes and, and staff, um, but you know, just the interactions with Mind charity with uh, the building industry with other sports who are doing it well um, you know uh, we're learning fantastically fast
0: and how how important is it and I'm sure it's very important to ensure that there's a real as far as sport is concerned there is a real joined up approach between what you at EIS are doing and what the other major sports governing bodies uh, organizations in the UK are doing UK sport and ultimately I guess government level to ensure that this this works as a as a holistic
3: approach. Yep. Yeah. so uh, there was some work come out last year um, from the Department of, of Culture, Media and Sport, Digital Culture and Media and Sport, I think it is now, um, you know, setting out a charter for the sports industry in terms of looking after mental health, um, and that, and that's great. And and charities like uh, Mind and the um, uh, sporting Alliance have, have taken that on and, and, and put forward some standards, for example, that was going to come out in the new year, uh, some standards around you know, core standards, these six things, if you're doing this as a sporting um, organisation or industry, then you're going to be looking after your athletes pretty well in terms of, of mental wellbeing and mental health. So we'll be looking to align ourselves uh, to that program of Thriving at Work standards, to say, which are coming out in the new year. Um, and. That will allow, I mean, every sport's going to be different. The cultures in, in our every 38 of our individual Paralympic and, and Olympic sports is very different. So we do need to tailor a provision uh, to some extent, but the basic principles and those basic core standards are probably cross sports but also cross industries, I think.
0: Final question. I think we're about 20 months or so away from the, the Tokyo, uh, the next Summer Olympic Games, uh, Paralympic Games. Uh, where would you hope to be in this
3: process by, by the time everybody heads to Japan? Yep, so currently we're looking at where we're going to be in a year's time. So if I'm back here talking to you in 12 months' time, what we'll hope to have in place by then is um, a really robust set of uh, training and education tools and resources around um, mental health awareness, mental health first aid, promoting good mental health within organisations, staff and athletes. So that's one part of it, the education. Second, in in terms of provision, we'll hope that a good proportion of the sports have a really robust plan for their provision of mental health, for creating a positive mental health environment within their sport. That's communicated across the sport, um, socialised, I've heard the term used a couple of times uh, over the last couple of days. Every, it's communicated to everyone, it's written down, and the whole sport buys into it and knows where they are, and they know who to talk to about mental health. There's an open conversation about mental health, and there's good care pathways for mental health. Um, and we hope that, uh, again, that a good proportion of sports this, in, this time next year will have those plans um, robustly in place. Sounds like we have a battalion of
0: helicopters <laughs> or something overhead. It's probably a good time to uh, stop, but looking forward to hearing you uh, speak this afternoon and, and continue good luck with everything you're doing.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Welcome back. So, David, who else did you speak to? Good question, John. Happy to field it. Uh, The next hit was Sam Robertson. Uh, You're going to hear from him. Uh, He's the head of research and innovation at Western Bulldogs. He gave a compelling presentation on stage about the future of high performance, AI, humans versus machines, scary stuff, Uh, but uh, it was a terrific presentation. And he also had a secondary role at the summit as part of our judging panel for the innovation lab our new um initiative this year uh, so we'll hear from sam on that and then we'll hear from the winner of the inaugural innovation lab competition this was our contest as you well know john in partnership with formula e and uh, mickey tamir the founder of track 160 the winner will be chatting to us and we'll get his we got his instant reaction uh, just after he came off stage having been announced as the winner. Uh, then we'll hear a couple of interviews that James conducted on his travels around the oval. Simon Timson is the performance director of the Lawn Tennis Association, so you'll hear more tennis chit-chat. From him. And James also sat down with Veronique Richard, uh, Cirque de Soleil, uh, of course, uh, one of the star turns at this year's summit. A terrific session uh, they ran. Uh, Veronique is part of their mental performance support, and James, I believe, uh, spoke to her in French, at
1: least partially. There were right? a few words here and there. Yeah. Okay. Credit where credit's due. Well,
0: if you can get past that, it's a great chat. Um, so yeah, hopefully that will give you a uh, flavour of uh, what went down behind the scenes at the Performance Summit, and then roll on the next one, eh, John?
4: Absolutely, can't wait, David.
0: Sam, thank you for being uh, with us. Uh, you have just come off stage having delivered a, uh, well, a presentation essentially about the future of uh, high performance, but you've also just been part of the judging panel for our very first Innovation Lab, where we've had um, a handful of startups uh, pitching live on stage. We're going to have the announcement of the winner soon, Um, but give us your overall impression of the the breadth and the range of, of entries that we've seen. Future looks bright for performance.
5: Well, absolutely. Uh, there's an incredibly varied uh, representation across all elements of sports science from physiology to computer vision, computer tracking, into athlete learning. And it just shows, uh, I guess, the breadth and depth of technology that's available to people now. And, and all you really need is a good idea. Uh, Certainly, some were more at the conceptual stage, or some are more fully developed. But again, uh, it's a, the future is a little bit unknown in that space. So we're really looking for some that had the ability to keep their eye on not just next year, but what's happening in five and ten years, and and how some of their ideas can really be sustainable in the future. How uh, you? I think
0: you've come to a decision. You're not going to tell us uh, what that is. Um, was it close? Well, give it, Take us into the judging room.
5: Well, I, I don't want to give too much away at all, but uh, absolutely, yeah, there were some that, that stood out with respect to a couple of key characteristics that we were, we were evaluating, but certainly it was close to, towards the end. There was a couple that we, we thought were quite quite similar, but we are really looking at uh, the ability of the solution to be widespread, to be applied across multiple sports. Uh, obviously, some solutions are, are more applicable to, to single sports, but... Really, when we're talking about a startup, it needs to be scalable. It needs to be transportable into other disciplines, other sports, uh, and it's particularly a, a, important in this dog-eat-dog world of, of startup. Um, when you're at the the Bulldogs, particularly in,
0: in your role, um, to what extent are you are you scouring the market for for the new, the the next great idea or the the next startup that could change the game? How take us into um, what the landscape and
5: how you view the landscape? Oh, well, it's fundamental to my role, but it hasn't always been that way. Uh, I was more involved in the sports science side of things uh, uh, once upon a time. So creation of this role is uh, something that's unique to Australian uh, football in particular. It's not something that's... It's, um, seen in all clubs and I consider myself uh, very lucky to have the time and um, to consider these ideas and and that's really a large part of it, having that time to not only think and consider new ideas but also visit places uh, like London and in Australia um, it's it's really important for us, we are a a long way away from most of the world so uh, it's fundamental to my role to make sure we're looking not just in, in sport, but in other disciplines, and that's, that's one of the real values of leaders for us as well, that we're able to, uh, to meet people that are in performance full stop. It may not be sport, may be in other areas, because there's a lot of commonalities in, in what it means to be high-performing as a human, whether it's sport or anything else.
0: I'm going to horribly simplify now your uh, extensive presentation, but humans versus machines, who are you backing?
5: Well, I tried to paint a very positive and uh, optimistic future for humans, and I hope that came across. But it was a valiant effort. Yeah. It was a valiant effort. So, I, I mean, I genuinely do believe that uh, there, there are going to be things that we are no longer going to be performing and functioning in, in the future, but I think it's a positive. I think... Uh, Yes, there'll be periods of, of time where we will have a bit of a dilemma about which, which to go with, but I think fundamentally the sooner we realise the benefits, uh, put aside the ego at the door of certain applications of machines, machine learning, uh, automation even, uh, I think the better we will be for it. And I, I gave a quote uh, at the start of the presentation around that uh, from 70 years ago, and, and nothing's changed. It, it will give us time and incentive to uh, live our life in a better way. And it's, again, it seems idealistic, but that's exactly what it will do. And just finally, uh, a word about the
0: Bulldogs, current health of the organisation. Uh, tell, us, tell us where you're at at the moment.
5: Well, I can't give you much information on that considering they're all training uh, right now and I've left them uh, in Melbourne, but it's heating up around 30 degrees. So, but as I, as I left, uh, a lot of players that were probably injured towards the back end of, of last season are back on the track, which is great to see. Uh, so uh, when I left, we were certainly in a healthier state injury-wise than we were uh, towards the end of last year. So very optimistic around the place. They are dismantling things around us, so we will leave it there, but great
0: to have you with us, Sam. Thanks for having me. So, we have just had the announcement of the winner of the Innovation Lab, the first Leaders Innovation Lab, in partnership with Formula E. And the winner is Track 160, and I am here with Dr... Mikey Tamir, who is the founder of the company, uh, congratulations, you've literally just been on stage um, having won, having been announced as the, the winner. How do you feel?
6: I feel, of course, very well, I think uh, that I try to, to bring the message of uh, deep learning to the industry of sports technology and uh, I think that uh, we are, and a few others are pioneers in that. And it works. We uh, really get much better results than we did before, and uh, I hope no it will help the the sports industry. That's. Uh,
0: Absolutely. Well, well, you've made a terrific start. It was a great, uh, it was a great pitch. How did it feel? So you were, uh, you had five minutes on stage to tell your story, which is quite a tough thing to yeah. do. Six, six finalists, um, of which you uh, were one. Um, how did it feel up there yesterday in front of the the judges? Quite intimidating atmosphere.
6: Yeah, it's a real challenge, you know, to 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 convey all the messages you have in five minutes. We like to make it difficult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I recommend to, do, to give us six minutes next time. Six minutes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <But> well, <laughs> you're the winner
0: now. You can influence <laughs> the rules for next year. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, tell us a little bit about Track One Hundred and Sixty, uh, briefly. Um, maybe not in not in five or six minutes, but in uh, in maybe a minute. Just give us the basics of what it does and what you want it to achieve.
6: Um. We do, we use deep learning, artificial intelligence, machine learning in computer vision to track the players throughout the match, to recognize the players throughout the match and to track the ball in three dimensions. And uh, once we have the locations of all players and the ball uh, in 3D, we can calculate all the tactical and performance parameters that uh, coaches and players and federations and media uh, would like to have. Um, I think one of the new things here is that is the ball tracking. I believe we are maybe the only ones doing it now reliably, and that's very important because you know the ball is still important in uh, football. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, it, and it probably always will be. Um, is that the next step? Is 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 it? Uh, and is it football based, or do you see this being? Um, having practical use across other sports. I mean, Formula E, the, the partner of this, uh, who set the challenge, helped us set the challenge. How um, how how do you see the future for Track 160 uh, across multiple sports?
6: Yeah, down the road we intend to to apply to other sports. Uh, we already have uh, requests from the from um, handball associations, mm-hmm. and then basketball, rugby, and other sports maybe formula as well.
0: <laughs> and, and tell us a little bit about the company in terms of uh, number of people, what does your team look like, where are you based, where can people find you?
6: company was founded uh, about 15 uh, months ago. Uh, it's based in Israel, in uh, Tel Aviv. We are now about uh, 25 employees. Most of them uh, R&D people, yeah, you know, yeah, well, algorithms, developers and programmers. Yeah. Uh, we start now building the, the, comp- the company, the commercial uh, branches of it and um,
0: and And what's the, what's the reaction been um, as you've taken this product to market and you've started talking to many of the, the teams and organizations and performance directors, coaches that we have in the room today and, and further afield?
6: Yeah, the action is, is amazing really by both uh, clubs, both in the professionals and the amateurs because I think with this technology you, c- you can address also the low- end market, which is it's a huge market. It's very di- uh, difficult to, to penetrate, but it's a target also a target market for us. And the action uh, was excellent. The, the proof is uh, the recent uh, deal we have with the DFL with the Bundesliga, they became shareholders of the company and they really help us in almost everything so yes, <laughs>
0: that, that will help. That sort, yeah. of, that sort of investment and great credibility for your organisation yeah. as well. Yeah. Super. Um, tell us finally about what the next twelve months look like. We're looking forward to following you on the on the journey. Um, now that you're our inaugural Innovation Lab winner, what are your main priorities for the for the year ahead?
6: First, we need to commercialise the the so the football product. Uh, we just uh, launched the first version, but of course there are many, many versions to come. Uh, we want to, to do it in real time and that uh, probably will, ha- will uh, happen in the next few months. As you said, we want to apply to other sports types. Um, we want to do the motion capture. Uh, this is not a product yet, but uh, it, it has a great use cases you know, in broadcast, uh, in coaching in gaming applications that's our plan for the 12 months hopefully <laughs> super super
0: <laughs> well look many congratulations again uh, great to have you with us in london for the event and uh well you know look forward to hearing more about the company yeah. as it
7: develops thank,
6: thank you. you very thank you. much for the task
7: Simon Timpson, Performance <laughs> Director, LTA, Lawn Tennis Association, otherwise known as British Tennis sometimes, is that right? Absolutely correct. Okay. Uh, roughly a year ago, uh, I spoke to you, maybe it was even two years ago, I asked you what your biggest mistake in sports, yeah, yeah. in your career was. Yeah. Uh, and you gave me a lovely example of something that happened you were with uh, British Skeleton. What's the best thing that you've ever done? The most rewarding thing? It's a hard one.
4: Um, well, there's a global answer to that, and there's a, there's a specific answer. So the most rewarding thing I do in sport is helping young people um, fulfil their true potential and hopefully achieve their dreams. I think the real privilege of working in elite sport is that we get to help people pursue their dreams day in, day out, and that's a privilege we shouldn't take lightly, and it's why we should provide our... Athletes and our players with the most holistic development opportunities we can. We need to develop them as people as well as performers and ultimately players. And their success has to be about what they deliver on the field of play and um, how happy and fulfilled they are off the field of play and in retirement and the opportunities they have after playing. So I think that's that that's. Both my biggest achievement um, at a high level is trying to do that in the environments that I've been in a British Skeleton, England Cricket and um, now British Tennis. So, so, the, so the great thing is seeing young people actually go and fulfil that potential, whether it was the likes of Ben Foulkes debuting for England against Sri Lanka. Uh, in the first test in Gaul last week and scoring a century in his first innings in cricket and winning the Man of the Match award. you know, Everything, I think, that we tried to do with the England Development Programme and, and England cricket are still doing, you know, coming to fruition in a performance like that. Whether it's uh, Amy Williams, you know, going on to win Olympic gold in 2010 in the Skeleton in Vancouver, probably personally one of the most rewarding moments, having sat with her and her dad back in summer 2002 at bath university where her dad is a professor emeritus of chemical engineering and saying well you know i really think if if amy was to give up her degree Mm. and concentrate on doing skeleton as a full-time athlete and travel all winter she could be olympic champion one day and i genuinely thought she could but the odds of it really actually transpiring and happening you know when probably not that great at that point in time, but just seeing somebody like Amy fulfill her potential and do something really special and become you know, quite an icon of, of certainly British winter sport and British women's sport, you know, absolutely fantastic. And I really hope now that I'm going to spend a good 10 years at the LTA and see you know, the likes of Jack Draper, Emma Raducanu, Anton Matusevich, Aidy McHugh, um, Holly Fisher, go on that journey as well mm. and, and and achieve similar things. And, you know, I see the passion and the fire burning bright in those young kids right now today. And I hope that we're going to be a really positive part of that journey with them over the next decade or so to hopefully them being, you know, well inside the world's top 100 and winning major tournaments one day.
7: It's a rewarding process for you but clearly it's something uh, of a focus for you as well at the moment and actually you were quizzed about this earlier um, just at the end of your session on stage mm. you're talking about sort of um, cross sport learnings and how you transfer various bits and pieces mm. from one sport into mm. another one uh, and you were asked specifically about this idea of holistic development mm. of talent. Mm. Um, you ran through a list of uh, promising British tennis players there. Mm. What are you doing differently in their development now to sort of move more towards this holistic approach than maybe was in place, say, five or ten years ago? Well, I think it raises a few eyebrows when we talk about um,
4: starting up two new national academies in Loughborough and Stirling next year that will be full-time residential pro-style training environments because people tend to recall at the, recoil at the thought of, you know, relocating 13-year-old kids from their families to a centre... But that's actually really normal in tennis and if we don't do it someone else will be doing it and the benefit of us doing it is we can hopefully create a step change in the way that young players are nurtured within the game of tennis by creating really holistic development environments that challenge the kids to develop as people provide them with a first-class education alongside a world-class tennis coaching and training environment with the right pastoral educational and uh, welfare and well-being support woven together in a precise blend of support and challenge that each individual needs. And, and a, the first thing I want these academies to do is really understand each individual person that is recruited into them, and create individual development plans for the person, the
7: player, and the performer. With there being a crucial difference between those three. Mm-hmm. Simon Tibson, you've got some tennis to get to. Uh, Thank you very much for being with us today. No worries. Pleasure. Cheers. Thanks. Véronique Richard.
8: Yeah, that's good.
7: Bienvenue. Thank you very much for being (laughs) with us today. Um, Thank you. Do you identify more as French or Canadian?
8: Oh, definitely Canadian. Okay. I mean, my language is French, but... I'm a Canadian. Yeah, definitely.
7: Are you you from Quebec?
8: I'm from Montreal, which is uh, in the province of Quebec.
7: Mm -hmm. And it says here that your job title, at least the job title that we have put down for you, (laughs) is Mental Performance Support at Cirque du Soleil. Is that correct? Did we get that
8: correct? That's correct. But Cirque du Soleil is not the only um, organization I'm working with. Mm -hmm. So I'm working also with many national, Canadian national team and different performers, not just sport, not just uh, uh, performing art, but also different other style of Mm -hmm. performance.
7: Mm -hmm. Um, So you work across, as you say, a spectrum of different uh, performance styles, I suppose, Uh, a spectrum of different sorts of uh, performers. Um, Talking about mental readiness, capacity for learning, mental toughness, Mm -hmm. um, what kind of minds do you find the most uh, easy to work with? What kind of performance? Open-minded. Okay. Okay
8: no hesitation no hesitation on that people that are open-minded it's it's kind of a basic skills to build other skill if you're willing to try different stuff and my my approach is really different so of course open openness to new experience uh, and new knowledge is is always something that i will appreciate in uh, in performers
7: Mm -hmm. Uh, what's an easy way to tell if someone is open-minded
8: uh, the, the the willingness really willingness will be another word of when I start working I can feel right away that the person is craving for knowledge craving for different experiences and, and that is how i can tell that okay we, we will go somewhere together
7: mm-hmm. um you have just been uh, downstairs on stage for us here at the leaders sport performance summit yeah. uh talking about the work that you've done at circ and also the work that you've done uh with canadian skating is that right
8: uh, well different sport organization okay. yes uh,
7: about creating different learning environments i guess for athletes and, and putting people out of their comfort zone mm-hmm. in order Um, to make progress, I suppose. First of all, why do you think it's important to put people out of their comfort zone?
8: I think it's important because uh, human is not built that way. Mm -hmm. So we really like when everything is stable, um, when everything is going as expected, but we know that high-level performance is not like that. So for instance, couple years ago I was working in a figure skating club and we were working with the best skaters in Canada but each time they had to perform in a really high level competition they were choking and the coach first uh, thought was like oh they don't manage anxiety properly so let's do a couple of session about that but you know what it, it didn't really like talking about anxiety or didn't really work out So then I went back to the coach and I was like you know what? I think we need to change uh, the environment and we need to challenge the skater in training during practices so they will get used to being uncomfortable because we know competition is all about discomfort. Which athlete has ever been to a competition where it's like, yep, it happened exactly the way that I was thinking? Sometimes, but it's pretty rare. So that that's based on this idea where okay, the world is uncomfortable, so why training in a comfortable environment? So, so that's a little bit the idea behind yeah, it.
7: sure, and you talked a lot about um, physical improvisation as well.
8: Movement improvisation, yeah. Movement improvisation, movement, movement yeah. improvisation.
7: yeah, exactly. Um, and you sort of touched on it there, the idea of anxiety or confidence, obviously the, obvious, uh, the, the opposite of anxiety. Mm-hmm. You don't become more confident by talking about confidence. No, no. Um, and where does this kind of uh, movement improvisation fit into that?
8: I think um, movement improvisation, even if it's not necessarily related to their sport or to their art, it brings them to think about their own self. And what is my own limitation oh, I don't like when this is happening to me. And because we create an environment which is progressive, it's like we don't put people out there right away, you know. There's a little progression in Mm -hmm. the movement Mm -hmm. improvisation. And being put on the line of not knowing what to do, as human, we really react to that. Mm -hmm. Because we are always taught what to do and then when you show up, well, you know what to do and it's easy. Uh, but when it's like, hey, here's, there's no rule, you do whatever and people are like, uh, whatever what? I don't know, whatever you want, but I'm not used to do whatever I want. So the concept of improv is really about that and the spontaneity. We, we train athletes to actually not be spontaneous. Like they learn something, they execute something, they compete something, that's it. And when you put them in this situation of like, oh. No, now I, I won't teach you anything. You'll discover by yourself. It brings this all new repertoire of way of thinking and way of doing that I think um, help people evolve mm-hmm. through this type of intervention.
7: You um, particularly talked about a story about someone that you worked with. I think you said her name was Dana. Yeah, Dana? Uh,
8: the fictive name, yeah, of yeah, course. Okay. <laughs> yeah. now, this character,
7: who uh, shall be known as Dana. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, she was part of a group that had to do some uh, improvisation, some movement improvisation, and she was very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with that. And found quite a creative way through that she was part of this troupe but instead of sort of acting out a role she decided to act out the role of a bed obviously a <laughs> static uh, object where she could basically hide on stage exactly
8: I guess. and doing nothing <laughs>
7: and but I, I was sort of interested as the, the next part of that story your response to that was to sort of praise and encourage her mm-hmm. why rather than say that's not the point of it you should kind of be you know free yourself up a bit and do whatever you want why why did you take that approach
8: because that's the rule i i as i said on stage down there it's there's no like you you leave your judgment at the door but after that the way participants in my session answer the stimulus that i'm giving them so here's the structure we will improv on fairy tales uh and then you decide to be the bad because you're really uncomfortable. Actually, I took this as an indication for me as a practitioner. Okay, this is the level of this participant right now, and I have to respect that. And not in a way like that it will stay like that for the whole intervention. It's like, okay, here's where she is. She is really uncomfortable, and if I just told her that this is wrong, who am I to tell her that this is wrong so I'm like okay actually it's a pretty original way that she took to deal with her own issues and by supporting that she was surprised like the when I first feedback I gave to the team was about her and about how original it was she never expected that like she expected again we are using a Educational system where it's like, if I give you an indication, this is how you have to respond. And I gave an indication, and she did not respond the way everybody else responded. So she thought I will go and be like, hey, next time you. No, perfect. And this was supporting my rule. So now she was like, okay, she's not kidding. Mm-hmm. It's true. Mm-hmm. It's true that I can really act the way I want to act. And the, the following session, she was a different. She was so different in her engagement, and it just went on like that for the remaining. I think there was eight sessions left, and at the end, it just she came to me and she, she was she understood mm-hmm. that she could open up, and that she also told me how much she discovered, how much she was her own limitation mm-hmm. in in, uh, in life, actually, not just in this type of intervention.
7: Thinking about um, all different sorts of sports, all different sorts of performers, do you think that um, kind of movement improvisation is probably the best way to deal with performance anxiety, confidence issues? Have you seen other ways that...
8: Uh, of course, there's no best way, right. right? And I will never claim that this is the best way. Uh, it's a way. It's a different way. Yeah. Um, you know, when we think of uh, anxiety, what provokes anxiety? Novelty? uncontrollability, unexpectancy, um, ambiguity, which is a word that I have a little problem no, pronouncing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, when you, you think about that, the best way, if I can answer your, your, your question that way, it's to reproduce these parameters in your training. Yeah. So movement improv, I think, bring all of this. Brings novelty, ambiguity. It brings uncontrollability because you never know what will happen. Mm -hmm. It it brings um, unpredictability because you never know how the other person will respond in improvisation. You never know, right? And it's just a way to play with the parameters. But can you do it in another type of intervention? Of course. For me, it's only taking parameters and bringing them into an intervention. But I strongly believe that experiential intervention are always a better way than just talking about the topic. So talking about anxiety, you can educate people about that, but at some point they will have to face mm-hmm. situation that will provoke anxiety to find their own way to deal with that. Movement improv is a, is one way. Mm-hmm. Of course, there could be a other way to create mm-hmm. the same impact.
7: And the whole idea is to put into practice these methods in order to, you know, go go out of your comfort zone on, on a consistent basis, so that you expand your comfort zone.
8: Exactly, right. and by expanding that comfort zone, it means that you will be able to better adapt to a bigger variety of situation. Mm-hmm. And if you can feel empowered in many various situation, then of course you you gain in term of performance uh, out of this.
7: Mm-hmm. Véronique, Richard, merci beaucoup.
8: Merci à vous.